Do you feel unfulfilled in your career as a medical SLP and perhaps a bit confused on how to even move forward? Do you feel completely overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed, yet completely misunderstood and underappreciated in your facility? Do you feel like you're riding the therapy hamster wheel, unsure if you're even providing good therapy for your patients? When you started practicing medical speech pathology after grad school, did you get overwhelmed with how much medical SLP information was missing from your graduate education? If you've been working in the field for a while, do you feel frustrated that there's no one single centralized source to stay up to date on all the latest research and treatments that are coming out every year? Are you even sure you're providing the right and best, most up-to-date treatment techniques for your patients? Are you sick of paying up to $500 for courses that teach you about just one of the many, many conditions you need to stay up to date on? Imagine if there was one place that you could go to receive all the support and resources to help you eliminate these feelings. Imagine how much time and frustration you would save if you had immediate access to one centralized location for blind peer-reviewed resources. Imagine if you had access to several clinical experts and university professors to help guide you in your clinical decision-making with personalized response to your clinical cases. Imagine if you felt you had the detailed, personalized support you needed to succeed in your practice and your career from a wide range of experts and fellow clinicians who care deeply about your career development. Do you think then your patients would receive higher quality care and actually make progress towards their goals? Do you think you would get more rewarded and recognized for this progress among your patients and in your facilities? What if I told you I've created this exact solution? It's called the Medical SLP Collective. It's a monthly membership program and vibrant community of fellow medical SLP clinicians and researchers who are supporting each other to provide better care for their patients and therefore also advance their careers. My name is Kristen West. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist that specializes in children with medically complex histories, and I've worked with them in a variety of settings. What I love most about the Med SLP Collective is that it is such a passionate group of speech-language pathologists that really strive to provide the highest level of care to their patients through the implementation of evidence-based practice in our field. It's also such a supportive learning environment where everybody is willing to share their expertise and their knowledge to help grow individuals' professional practice, but also advance our profession. It really is such an interesting and unique learning community. I never have incur- um, I never have encountered anything like that in the field until I joined the Med SLP Collective, and I really can't say enough great things about it. I truly cannot say enough good things about being a part of the Med SLP Collective. It's really changed the way that I approach every single type of patient that I may not have been 100% confident in. So obviously, we want to work within our realm of competency and make sure our patients are getting the best care, but sometimes the job comes with things that we maybe don't feel highly confident on. So I was trained in voice and I was lucky enough to be trained by an incredible voice pathologist and feel very confident in my voice skills. But my entire career I have worked in voice and swallowing institutes and so with the voice people come the swallowing people as well and that's not something I always was very confident in. And the Med SLP Collective has given me so many resources and so much 
actual information that you can use in the clinic. I've always loved going to conferences and meeting colleagues and networking and being inspired by the researchers, but I always felt lackluster as I came away from it, like I didn't have anything to go home and use. And anytime I'm feeling unsure of anything, I can reach out to a mentor in the group or just the other members. You can go on the website and get instructions on how to do exercises, the rationale behind it, evidence-based practice. It's really just a wealth of knowledge and it has grown my clinical practice immensely and made me feel so much more confident and inspired as a clinician. Hey everybody, Natalie Douglas here from Central Michigan University. And there are so many reasons that I love the Medical SLP Collective and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Probably the biggest reason is that I love how clinicians are able to approach mentors in ways that specifically solve clinical problems that they're facing right in the moment and get very tailored advice that is supportive and really meeting the needs that they have right then, which I think is such a unique contribution to the profession. I also sincerely appreciate how much Teresa really cultivates a culture of respect and collaboration and the resources are just completely top-notch. She has a rigorous peer review process and the resources again are based on true SLP need and I just love how this is an awesome way to merge research and clinical practice in a supportive collaborative environment can't say enough about it. If you're interested in joining us, enrollment opens December 9th. You can go to medslpcollective.com and either get on the waiting list or if it is past December 9th, you can join. So um, enrollment will be open from December 9th through December 13th. So I hope you'll join us then at medslpcollective.com. This is episode 114 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. And today's guest is Dr. Georgia Malandraki. She's an associate professor of speech language and hearing sciences and biomedical engineering at Purdue University. She's also a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and the research director of the Purdue I Eat Swallowing Research Laboratory and Clinic. Her research focuses on investigating developmental and treatment swallowing neuroplasticity across the lifespan and developing rehabilitative and telehealth interventions for dysphagia. Dr. Malandraki's work has been funded by the National Institutes of Health, the NIDCD, and NIBIB, the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine, the Showalter Research Trust, and the Purdue Research Foundation. Among others, she has been awarded the Early Career Research Contributions Award by ASHA in 2011, the Ralph W. and Grace M. Showalter Research Trust Award in 2018, the Patsy J. Mellet Teaching Innovation Award in 2018, and more recently, the Purdue College of Health and Human Sciences Early Career Research Achievement Award in 2019. This year, she was also awarded with her co-PI, Dr. Chi Wan Lee, the NIH NIBIB Trailblazer R21 Award for their work on wearable sensors for dysphagia management. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, 
being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Holy cow, I am out of breath from reading <laughs> reading George's bio. She's, oh my gosh, she's amazing. I just love this whole conversation with her. I hope you guys love it as well. And yes, I am completely out of breath. If you didn't know, I'm expecting a baby any day now. I'm hoping this week. <laughs> so I definitely will not be at the ASHA convention this week. I'm really sad. I love the convention. I loved, I had so much fun at the last Orlando convention, so I am so bummed. Um, but if any of you guys are going, we do have a booth for the MedSLP Collective. Um, a few of my gals will be there. And if you are interested in joining the collective while you're at the convention, you can sign up there at the convention. Um, and one thing I will say is that Dr. Georgia Malandraki will be presenting our December webinar for ASHA CEUs for the collective. So if you want to hear more about neuroplasticity and the neural controls of swallowing, uh, she's going to be presenting that webinar. So um, if you're going to the convention this weekend, not this weekend, this week, <laughs> go check out the MedSLP Collective booth at booth 894 and get signed up. If you're not going to be at the convention, we are opening again December 9th. So um, you can get signed up then as well. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Georgia is wonderful, as I said, as you all obviously know. And I hope the next time I'm recording this intro for you guys, I will have this baby out and I will be able to breathe again to do an entire introduction all at once. Hello, Georgia. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I can't thank you enough for doing this and coming on here and sharing all your wonderful knowledge with everybody. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll try. I'll do my best. Okay. That's all we ask. Yes. All right. <laughs> So if people don't know who you are, can you just give them a little blurb about who you are? Yes. So I am a speech pathologist and a board-certified specialist in swallowing disorders, uh, like you, <laughs> um, and many of the people probably who are listening to us. I'm also an associate professor in the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences at Purdue University. Um, I have a courtesy appointment in biomedical engineering here at Purdue as well because I do a lot of collaborative research with some of our biomedical uh, engineering uh, faculty. And my area of expertise, I would say, is in the realm of better understanding the neurophysiology of swallowing and using that knowledge in order to develop treatment modalities that uh, will eventually be a little bit more effective than what we currently have available. So, so the million-dollar question, Georgia, is why do we have to know this stupid neuro stuff? Okay, all right. Well... <laughs> Well, as I think I've told you before, you know, I really believe the neurophysiology and the neuroscience of swallowing is really the foundation for us to be able to provide treatment. And without this knowledge, um, we're really almost blind into what exactly we're doing. Um, and I'm hoping that today through this chat, we'll be able to persuade some more people, especially anybody who is still, you know, thinking that maybe it's not as important. Swallowing and the, the nervous system is, is critical for swallowing. It, it can't happen without the nervous system, all the different aspects from, of the nervous system. Uh, any movement, any sensation from the oropharynx, from the mouth, the throat, all of it is controlled by the nervous system, by different aspects and levels of the nervous system. Uh, so if anything goes wrong at any level of the nervous system control, 
it could very easily result in a deficit that will ultimately lead to dysphagia or different aspects of oropharyngeal difficulties. What I love about this conversation is I feel like so many speech pathologists just like look in the mouth and they start there, whereas you kind of start at the top of the brain and work your way down. So hopefully we can get some people to meet in the middle. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think looking in looking in the mouth and looking in the periphery is what we have, right? That's the first thing that we can do. But uh, actually looking carefully can really give you a lot of clues about what's happening in the nervous system. And I think that's the that's the biggest probably lesson for for from this talk hopefully that being able to really understand some clinical manifestations of neurological deficits will really help us uh, a neurophysiological deficit will help us understand our patients a little bit better. Uh, and a lot of times, as I think we will talk about, even before we even see the patient, so as long as you know what is happening with the patient, we have a really good case history, a lot of times we will already, if we have a good foundation of the nervous system and how it impacts swallowing and the oral motor system, the oral, oral sensory motor system is probably the more accurate term, it will really equip us much, much better in better understanding those behavioral symptoms and manifestations of, of disorder. I think that's kind of one thing I've learned just in my experience working is now kind of looking at a chart review and knowing the buzzwords that I need to be looking for will just help me paint a better picture of the patient before I even go in and see them. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day and I was like, well, what's the diagnosis? And they're like, well, a stroke. And I was like, okay, but where, why, what? There's a lot, a lot more information than just a stroke that we need. And I think just kind of my experience has helped me to learn that I need to know those different parts of the, you know, brain that are impacted because then I know obviously how it's going to manifest a little bit better. And the other thing, I think the other important reason why to know this, because uh, of course, diagnostically, it's a very important information, but also therapeutically, we have to, you know, if our goal is to rehabilitate swallowing, not just to compensate for it, but to really rehabilitate or restore swallowing function, that means that we have to understand how the nervous system can help in restoring that function. And so knowing the underlying neurophysiology, the, nor the normal neurophysiology first, then how it is disrupted and how it can be improved, is these are all pieces of the same puzzle. And ultimately, if we want to be really effective in our treatments, we, we need to understand this information really well. So not only for diagnostic purposes, but also for, and more importantly, probably for therapeutic reasons. All right. So where should we start here, Georgia? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so do you um, want me to say a little bit about the confusion that exists between uh, the terms of recovery and compensation? That would be great. Yep. Yeah. Um, as we said, ultimately, the goal of rehabilitating a lost or damaged function is um, uh, for the person to regain that function, hopefully fully, so that they can regain functional independence. And uh, a lot of times, so recovery of lost function is, a, is an ultimate goal in rehabilitation science and clinical practice. But a lot of times, uh, there's a, a little bit of confusion between the terms restoring restoring or recovery and compensation. And I think that stems primarily from a couple of reasons. Number one, first of all, you know, if you, uh, if, if we clinically see that a function is recovered in quotes, we will say, oh, you know, this function recovered. But if we don't pay careful attention about how exactly that behavior was manifested, it could be that maybe the person is using a different strategy to accomplish the same task or the same goal. So that would be a compensation, actually, not to recovery. And the other reason why I think there's confusion between these two terms is because 
ultimately both can lead to some level of functional independence for some of our patients. So, uh, but when, actually, uh, if we want to talk about kind of the rehabilitative or neurophysiological definition of recovery, that means that the function is actually, is, is fully restored to the, to the level that it was before the injury or the disease process. So that's what true recovery is versus compensation. As we said before, it's a function can be replaced or taken over or substituted by another structure or another function sometimes. So there, these two, there's, there's distinct differences between the two in actually in all levels of, of performance and from performance to neural level. So although both can, can help us get a task accomplished, True recovery will use the exact same motor patterns we used before the injury. Compensation will use patterns that are new. Uh, so either different muscle activity levels or different degrees of freedom, if we're talking about a movement, for example. And then at the neural level, they're also different. So typically, um, recovery means neural function is also restored at the same areas or, or surrounding areas of the injury versus compensation is we actually see neural activity in areas that do not really have to do much with where the injury was before. So there's there's difference between the two fundamental differences. Now, although these two terms are different, the reality is, although, of course, all of us want to help our patients recover, especially if we're talking about patients with neurological insults, different types of neurological, neurological insults, the reality is that all of our, not all of our patients can recover. Right, and we have different diseases and disorders that we deal with. So I want to mention that because although that's what we should be targeting, that's not always possible, and we should still know how. What are some things that we can do, even if the function cannot fully recover, that will at least maintain the function or improve the function, even through compensations, as long as they're not what we call maladaptive compensations. So compensations that lead to something negative in function or in. Uh, neural activity. And the reason I'm, I'm talking about this a little bit is because ultimately, if we want to achieve either one of those, recovery or maintenance of function, the best way to do it, as I said earlier, is to really understand what approaches are better. And in order to do that, we have to know the underlying physiology and the neurophysiology of the system really well, to recognize deficits in the system and know what these may reflect in terms of neurophysiological function for swallowing specifically, and then understand how to improve those deficits. So that really hierarchical knowledge of the nervous system is going to be rather important, I think, to, to, to ultimately achieve that goal. Can, can I ask you, Georgia, what, I guess, when or where or how did you just become so passionate about this part of the brain that impacts swallowing? Well, I think I was always interested in the brain. I remember myself since undergrad years, um, but I think the really during my P, during, during, actually during my master's my master's degree at Ohio University, I actually um, I had a neuroanatomy course by a really great professor, Dr. Shu, who was uh, was teaching us. We were doing dissections of brains and spinal cords, and it was really really cool. And the, the first year, I loved the course. The second year, he chose me to be his TA. So uh, I kind of like learned it really, really well because I had to teach it. So that's the best way to learn a lot of times. And then, so I think that in, inspired my first kind of real passion for the brain. And then when I was doing my PhD with Adrian Perlman, who is also a big, uh, very well-known physiologist of swallowing, 
I was able to kind of delve deeper and start understanding these things a lot better. But uh, just in, to make people feel better, it took me years to fully understand. And I, I hope I have a relatively full understanding of what's happening. Uh, we don't know everything yet, first of all, but it took me years to fully understand exactly how swallowing is controlled and the different aspects of swallowing. And uh, so I hope people don't feel discouraged if this is difficult to learn. It is a little difficult, but hopefully we can simplify it in a way that people can start understanding it a little better in case they don't already. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. What do you want me to talk about next? Should we dive into the brain? Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So, so the way I usually talk about these functions, because I feel like it's a little bit easier for people to understand because from maybe basic biology courses they've taken before, or even basic uh, neuroscience courses they've taken before, they kind of understand the the motor and the sensory system for the body. Um, so I usually start there and I say, you know, the cranial system or the bulbar system or the head and neck system, however you want to call it, is, is similar, but it has some distinct differences. So if we were to just quickly review, you know, how does sensation, somatosensation for the body work? Somatosensation meaning the feelings that we get from the skin and our mucosas inside our, our body. So typically, you know, one side of the body will perceive a sensation and it will send that information to the contralateral thalamus, which is the sensory relay station of the brain. And then that information will end up in the uh, primary sensory cortex where it will be perceived in the parietal lobe of the brain um, so that we know exactly what happened and maybe react to it if we need to or have some emotions or some cognitive processes going on as, as reactions to that perception. And we have primarily two sensory tracts in the body, one that is responsible primarily for things like pain and temperature and kind of light touch. And that is a, a part of the body that actually crosses at the level of the spinal cord, uh, whereas we have uh, in another system that is more for vibration, proprioception, or localization of touch or more fine touch. And that's actually a, a, a track that actually crosses in the medulla as well as just the motor system crosses in the medulla for the body. So, and that that um, the reason why I'm mentioning the levels of crossing for the different types of somatosensation is because different lesions at different levels of the spinal cord or the brainstem can actually cause a little bit of different uh, sensations in the body or. or loss of sensations in the body. And then in terms of the motor system, uh, again, probably this is kind of like an overview for most people, hopefully. But typically, you know, we plan our motor uh, movements in the premotor and supplementary motor area, uh, which is right next, as I I tell my students, is best friends with the primary motor cortex. They're right next to each other. So we plan the uh, motor commands there. And then uh, really the primary motor cortex is the, the command center that will send those commands down those signals down. Uh, so upper motor neurons at the cortex will send through their axons, through signals we call action potentials. You know, that's kind of like anatomy 101 probably for a lot of people. Um, we'll send those motor commands down uh, and these signals will cross at the level of the medulla, at the lower level of the medulla in the brainstem and will go to the other side of the uh, to the other side of the body so that they can innervate our limbs, for example. Now, of course, we have the motor system is a lot more complex than that. There are some tracks that actually do not cross, those that innervate the axial muscles of the body, so the trunk muscles, for example. And we also have some other motor systems in the brain, like the basal ganglia. The basal ganglia will help, actually, before the commands even go down, will help regulate how much or how little 
movement will be there. And then the cerebellum as well is another motor center in the brain that helps with coordination of the movement. The cerebellum also is very important after the movement has happened because it will it can give us it can provide the feedback loop so that we can refine or correct some movements. So this is some general knowledge for the sensory and the motor system. And then in terms of what is different in the cranial system, a few things. Uh, number one, probably the most kind of profound difference is that the both the motor and the sensory, somatosensory, both motor and somatosensory functions of the cranial system are primarily innervated bilaterally. So unlike our limbs, right? And, and the, so there's a lot of redundancy in the head and neck. And probably it makes sense because the bulbar system and the cranial system really serves some very, very important functions. In addition to swallowing, as we all know, speech, breathing, chewing, some really, really important functions that we need for survival, for communication. There's definitely some redundancy. So most of the innervation is bilateral. There are a couple of exceptions, especially as they relate to the tongue, the hypoglossal nerve, and the facial nerve, especially the lower face. Uh, those are innervated contralaterally. But pretty much all other aspects, all other cranial nerves are uh, provide bilateral innervation. That means that both sides of the brain innervate both sides of the head and neck, pretty much. Still, I will say that the, the primary innervation is still contralateral, but there is some ipsilateral innervation as well. So that, that provides that redundancy. Another key difference that uh, I know maybe has been discussed in other podcasts as well is in terms of the muscle type types that we have in the head and neck. We really have a, a, a really wide variety of muscle uh, types and muscle, type, muscle fiber types as well compared to the skeletal muscles of the rest of the body. First of all, we have muscles that are, you know, in the, in the oropharynx, for example, we have a muscular hydrostat, that's, that is the tongue. Uh, a muscle that doesn't have skeletal support, that can move in really weirdly uh, shapes but without changing its volume. And it's a really hard a muscle to analyze, a group of muscles to analyze and an organ to analyze in terms of its kinematics, for example because it has such fluid movement. Uh, we have muscles that are more what we would call the sphincteric category. So those are, could be, uh, you know, and of course we know that the UES, the upper subjective sphincter is a big sphincter, but also uh, the orbicularis oris uh, sometimes is referred to as a partially a sphincter or even some of the pharyngeal constrictors, some people would say. Then we have muscles that need to uh, vibrate really, help uh, our vocal folds vibrate really quickly and uh, be very fatigue resistant, the intrinsic laryngeal muscles. Uh, so we have a lot of different types of muscles and in terms of muscle fiber types, uh, I don't wanna get too technical, but also there is a lot of uh, variability. Uh, a word that is often used to describe a lot of the muscles is polymorphism, which means that their fiber types and the, the fiber uh, uh, structure is, is, really, uh, is really different and has a lot of different forms in simple terms uh, than some of the muscles that we see in the limbs. So there's, there's definitely, that's another big difference. So we have a lot of muscle types and with different muscle fibers than uh, the, the typical two or three muscle fiber types that we see in the limbs. And if you or your facility are considering a true high-definition fees imaging system, please consider our wonderful sponsor, NDOHD, EndoHD. They are a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. 
EndoHD can be a cased portable system as well as a carded system, depending on your needs. Additionally, EndoHD representatives can help clinicians set up their fees programs. So contact them today at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. So those were the main uh, things. Oh, the additional, the additional thing I want to mention is that the cranial nerves that innervate the head and neck, 11 out of the 13 are associated with the brainstem. So the brainstem is a very, very important structure as well when we talk about the oropharyngeal system and the head and neck system. And within the brainstem, we have uh, several uh, what are known as central pattern generators. Now, we have central pattern generators in the spinal cord as well for different functions, but in the brainstem, we have a swallowing central pattern generator, a breathing central pattern generator, a chewing central pattern generator, a licking central pattern generator. So um, what are these generators? They're, as the word implies, they are groups of neurons that all to, and interneurons that all together they, they have some special communication with each other. They can communicate with each other through interneurons really easily and can dictate some repetitive movements to happen and actions to happen, even sometimes in the absence of any sensory feedback. So there are loops or groups of networks of neurons that can trigger specific actions. So they can trigger a, chew, a chewing pattern. They can trigger a pharyngeal swallow. They can trigger a licking uh, event uh, to happen. Uh, they can trigger a respiratory system, even in the absence of any other input to them. Uh, however, what we have been finding out in the last few years is that these central pattern generators, although they're, they're very powerful by themselves, at the same time, they cannot really always produce fully functional events without cerebral input, so without input, input from the cortex and the subcortex. Um, and some examples of that are, we can even use clinical examples in addition to a lot of the research that has been done in the electrophysiology of the brainstem. For example, patients with unilateral cortical or subcortical strokes, they still have pharyngeal dysphagia a lot of times. Well, if, if pharyngeal swallow was a purely CPG-mediated event, then why would, would they have that, right? So there's definitely some connections or the other example that I like giving is, you know, babies that are born, what we call acephalic babies. So without a fully developed cortex, but a relatively um, intact um, or more developed brainstem, and those babies still have significant difficulties with sucking, breathing, swallowing, and coordination of those three functions. So we definitely know that the two have to the cerebrum and so cortex, subcortex, and the brainstem really have to talk to each other well for a fully functional swallow to happen. I think these are the main differences. I hope I didn't forget any, but I think the main things are that, you know, the cranial nerves, the CPGs, this head and neck is bilaterally innervated, as we said, mostly, mostly for the most part. And then that we have a lot of different muscle types that we still don't know enough about. So that's a big thing. I think a lot of times we, um, including myself, so I'm not, I'm not uh, putting the blame on anybody else. I think uh, just because we're trying to help our patients and try to do it in an efficient and quick way, a lot of times we will use what we know from the limb literature and apply it to the oromotor literature, to the cranial system. And it's not always, as we can imagine, that that's, that's not always the best way to go. But in, in the lack of evidence, sometimes we try 
uh, we try to to see what, what what do we know from the limb system and how can we apply it to the cranial system as well. I'm not saying that that's totally wrong, but we def there's definitely there definitely needs to be some adjustments. So the more we know about muscle performance in the cranial system, the, the better off we will be. And there are a lot of people that study this both in animals um, and in humans. So hopefully the next few years we'll have a lot more knowledge in this area. And we get to learn it all over again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> all right. So, I mean, just just to quickly, just to understand, and I'm, I'm not going to go over this in any detail because I think over a podcast that would be like... A, yeah. Horrible thing to do, <laughs> and nobody will listen. But uh, uh, just quickly, just to understand the complexity of the system we're talking about for swallowing specifically. So, if we look at just an overview of uh, the somatosensory pathways for the head and neck area, and for swallowing specifically, all all aspects of swallowing from the oral phase uh, uh, all the way to uh, the pharyngeal phase, that we we see that there is a, at least three cranial nerves and one plexus, which means collection of multiple nerves running together, that's what the word plexus means, that are involved in our perception of somatosensation sensation from the oropharynx and the larynx. And we also have, uh, and, and for taste perception too. Uh, and then in terms of motor commands and motor innervation, we have at least four cranial nerves and, and, and uh, one or two plexuses being involved in innervating motor aspects of the swallow. Again, talking about all the different phases of the swallow. So we're really talking about a wide network. Um, so if we think about it, about, about six pairs of, six out of the 12 pairs of cranial nerves that we have in our body are somehow involved in swallowing. So that, that gives you, I hope, it gives people the idea that this is a very important task. We need to have all that redundancy possibly, and all that, uh, not necessarily redundancy, but all that, all that innervation going. And then if we go higher up, as we said, in the brainstem, we have multiple CPGs uh, with the swallowing CPG um, uh, in, the, in the medulla area primarily. And uh, one thing that I want to mention about those central pattern generators in the brainstem, those groups of neurons that are, are together and talk to each other, is that a lot of them, a lot of these different CPGs or central pattern generators actually have some common areas. And, and that's why we see some overlapping between swallowing and breathing, swallowing and chewing, for example, and things like that. So there's a lot of overlapping function between these different um, locations and groups of networks in the brainstem. And then if we go even higher up in the brain, which is the relatively newer knowledge for swallowing, that's one of the things that I feel, you know, we have contributed with our work as well in the past few years then we identify brain areas that have been seen to be active when people swallow different types of liquids or consistencies um, uh, under neuroimaging protocols. And uh, these areas, um, again, there are many. The primary that probably most researchers agree on, the, primary, the lateral primary motor and primary sensory cortices, so those areas that control the tongue, and then the head and neck, basically. The primary motor and sensory cortices are important. In addition to um, areas uh, like the insula has been, I think, uh, very consistently reported from different studies. The anterior cingulate cortex that is involved in other functions as well. The insula is also involved in other functions, uh, as well as areas like the basal ganglia, the cerebellum. So these, are, these areas all have been implicated in some aspects of the swallowing sequence, 
And as you can probably, as everybody probably knows that is listening to this, is that these areas are not unique to swallowing. They do a lot of other things. First of all, they have a huge overlap with speech and with other cranial uh, functions. Uh, in addition with probably functions of other functions, like the insular cortex is part of the taste cortex, for example, right? So, so the, there's definitely a lot of um, uh, what is called somatotopic overlapping in the brain. And it, 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 that also is, is interesting because poss- possibly, although all these areas are active when we're doing all these different tasks, they're possibly active in a different way. We still don't know exactly, or they modulate the different muscles or the different areas in a little bit of a different way. And that's something of of big interest that it would be great to better understand as well. But but I I think it also speaks speaks volumes to the fact that our brain is very plastic and it can do a lot of different things with a lot of different areas. And it's a very good news for us because that means that, you know, know, we can rehabilitate the swallow if, you know, until I think I've said this before, a lot of times up to about 15 to 20 years ago when swallowing was still primarily taught talked about as if it was a pure reflex, brainstem mediated freedom reflex, the chances for rehabilitation were very low because, okay, if you lose a reflex, how do you get it back? It's really difficult. But now that we know that the brain is somehow involved, although we don't fully understand that involvement yet, that really gives us much more hope that we're dealing with a task that can be rehabilitated up to a great extent when lost or when compromised. So another another important thing I think we need to understand is that in addition to those areas that are important specifically for swallowing and that have been seen to be active when somebody swallows or does different, completes different tasks with our motor system, there are other networks in the brain that are also active when people eat. Because, you know, we can't really talk about swallowing without talking about eating and the whole process, right, in a functional way. The, and so when people eat, uh, you know, there's so many networks in the brain that are also active. Uh, you know, they're smelling their food, they're looking at their food. So we're talking about visual systems as well. They're, they're listening to the sounds of the food outside and inside the mouth. You know, there's a lot of other networks. They're remembering about a, a similar food that they had before. So there's cognitive processes going on and memory. And I mean, we talk about smell and smell also. At least it's a lot of memories because it's very close to the memory center in the brain. So a lot of different other networks are active when, uh, when people eat. And uh, that's, I think, also a relatively unexplored area. But it also, I feel, it points to the fact that if all these networks are potentially active, and a lot of these networks actually include some of the areas that are active during swallowing as well, I, I think it opens up also some po- possibilities and opportunities of trying to engage some of these networks uh, in swallowing treatment, for example, if we wanted to maximize uh, results. Again, it's kind of a hypothesis at this point, but I, again, knowing that how plastic the, the brain is and the nervous system is, it's, you wonder if, if we could take more advantage of these other networks when we talk about treatment, could we actually make treatment more effective and uh, induce more neuroplasticity and uh, more adaptive neuroplasticity and uh, restoration of function in a better way? Yeah. Is that too technical? <laughs> no, no, this is great, okay. Georgia. Okay. 
you, you just kind of touched on neuroplasticity a little bit. Yes. Could you kind of explain that a little bit more? Because it's still a foreign concept, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, th- I thought that it was pretty well known, but yeah, no. Uh, no, it's oh, no I, I don't know. I know a lot of people talk <laughs> about it. So, you know, um, yeah. so neuroplasticity relates to the ability of the brain to uh, change in uh, form uh, or in function in response to different stimuli, both internal stimuli and within the body, uh, as well as external stimuli. So uh, when you're learning a new task, for example. And, um, and there are a lot of different drivers of plasticity, which kind of relates to what, what we can do, in terms, especially behaviorally. So, for example, we have evidence for, especially for swallowing or for oral motor tasks, I would say more more generally, more so than swallowing, we have evidence that uh, we can induce changes in the, uh, mostly in the function of the nervous system, but also in the form of the nervous system when we train uh, the oral motor system, uh, either using, there is some evidence for behavioral training paradigms, but also um, a lot has been shown in terms of stimulation. So, um, uh, electrical stimulation of the pharynx, uh, for example, has been shown to induce some neuroplastic changes in the brain. Uh, sensory stimulation has also been uh, shown to induce some changes in brain activity. Uh, the problem with a lot of the stimulation studies is that they have shown kind of transient stim- neuroplastic events. I don't know of any strong evidence of kind of long, more long-term events. In general, we know that for long-term events, you want the um, you want the, the behavior or the function to be repeated a certain amount of times and to follow some you know. And I know you guys have talked before about principles of neuroplasticity and motor learning and how important those are. But ideally, you want to follow some of these principles in order to really induce more long-term types of neuroplastic changes. A lot of that, I think, now is being mostly applied and investigated in treatment paradigms. We don't have a lot of evidence yet, but I think it's coming out because a lot of people are looking into applying some uh, behavioral exercise programs or even stimulation programs uh, or combination programs using some principles of motor learning or neuroplasticity. So hopefully we'll have more evidence on that for swallowing specific activities uh, as well. Right now, a lot of these principles come from kinesiology literature, uh, physical medicine rehabilitation literature, animal studies. So from other from other fields, more so than from our the swallowing field. But it is something that we, I think, a lot of us are very interested in it, and a lot of us actually yeah. use a lot of these principles already. So uh, it's just yeah. a matter of time, hopefully, to produce more and more evidence. I don't want to repeat the principles because I know you guys talked about them. That's okay. That's okay. Everybody explains them a little bit differently, so I just like to hear. Right. Again, I can I can address that more in the webinar if you think that will be something people want to know. So I want to make a couple of final points here. Swallowing used to be called a reflex, um, and we used to believe that it was a simple reflex that was mediated or modulated by the brainstem, and that the brain didn't really have a lot to do with swallowing. We now know, with a lot of research that has been done in the past 20, 25 years, that swallowing actually is not a simple reflex, but it's a complex series of of events that involve, as we said before, all levels of the nervous system, from a periphery all the way to the brain. 
And although the central pattern generators, those special groups of neurons and interneurons in the brainstem that we discussed before, can trigger some semi-automatic swallowing events. For example, they can trigger parts of our chewing or parts of our pharyngeal swallow to happen. Control from higher up centers in the brain, in the cortex, in the subcortex is actually needed for all these events to be fully functional and fully normal or effective. And that's why we now call the pharyngeal swallow, we don't call it a reflex anymore, we call it a patterned response. response. And that means it is a neural response that it is initiated, can be initiated at the brainstem level, but is actually patterned or modulated by higher up centers in the brain. Um, so I know this is a term that hopefully a lot of people are familiar with, but if not, I wanted to make sure that uh, people know about this new term. Now, you may ask, what are the differences in the neural control of the oral versus the pharyngeal stages? And if I were to try and simplify what is the neural control of the oral versus the pharyngeal stage, what I would say is that, and as some of my own, our own work has shown actually, the oral stage of swallowing is controlled a little bit more from the brain, so it's a little bit more voluntary. So for example, we can choose to bite our food or chew our food, or we can choose not to, right? But it still has some semi-automatic components that are controlled by certain um, central pattern generators in the brainstem. So for example, we can chew even without realizing we are chewing, especially if we are eating something we have chewed many times before. So our body is very familiar with it, right? And our nervous system. Or if we're chewing and doing something else at the same time. Okay, so we, sometimes we eat and we don't even realize some of these uh, oral events happening. And the pharyngeal stage is now the opposite. It's controlled a bit more from the brainstem, so it's more semi-automatic. For example, once you trigger a pharyngeal swallow, it is not easy to voluntarily control what happens next, right? But it still has some parts that are controlled by higher brain centers, and that's why we can complete swallow maneuvers. Even during the pharyngeal stage, we can do the Mendelssohn maneuver, the effortful maneuver. Okay, so there's definitely some voluntary manipulation we can do even in the pharyngeal stage. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.